and say, listen, this edict that you've put out on the Jews, you've got to stop that. I'm begging you. This is what Mordecai asks Esther, passive Esther, to do. So what does Esther think of Mordecai's desperate plea to help the Jews? Verse 9. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there's but one law, to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me... I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. It's a pretty intense reality and a pretty intense scene. It's when you read the relationship between Queen Esther and King Xerxes that you realize this is not a typical marriage. This is not the type of marriage that you and I may see or experience or be used to. Because if Esther approaches this king, her husband, without permission... She can be put to death. She can be executed, annihilated herself. I can guarantee you that I'd be the one put to death if I tried to swing that with my wife. She's from Texas. They're born with a hunting license. I know it would not end well for me if I tried to pull that on Steph. This man says, if you're coming to my presence, you're my wife. If you come to my presence without my permission you're done. You're, you're, you're ended. And so the stakes for Esther, listen, are not like for you and me. The stakes for Esther are really high. It's a matter of life and death, literally. It's not a, a casual matter here. But not only that, not only is it against the law and she can be put to death for it, but you've got to remember, they've been married now for five years. And what's the big secret Esther has been hiding? She's Jewish. Her husband doesn't know that she's Jewish. I mean, imagine being married to someone for five years and them revealing a a secret like that to you. How has she hidden this for five years? And knowing this king, what would his response be if suddenly Esther says, there's a people that you have commanded a decree against, I'm one of them, and you've not known it for five years. Can you feel the tension, the, the difficult situation that Esther finds herself in. And to make matters even worse, Esther tells Mordecai, listen, not only is it against the law, not only am I a Jew who's been in secret for five years, but I've not even seen the guy for 30 30 days. I've not been in his chambers for 30 days. Most likely he's gotten sick of me. He's moved on to someone else, some other woman in the harem, and he's done with me. I've got no clout. I've got no leverage with him. And so you look at all of those things, and you've got to sort of agree with Esther, because the odds are stacked against her. All the the reasons you could possibly put out, she's got. She has no chance to come before the king, perhaps to not die, or, or at best, maybe it not work. Maybe she's vanished. Maybe she's killed. What will happen if Esther actually moves forward into the king? But as you come here, you realize she has to make a choice. It's a defining moment for her. She has to make a choice. There's a fork in the road, and she has to choose one path. Am I going to retreat? Am I going to keep silent and self-protect to save myself 
Or am I going to risk, hold my breath, walk into the king's courts, speak on behalf of my people, and perhaps save them? Because hear this, if Esther tries to save herself, her people will be slaughtered. But if Esther tries to save her people, she will likely be slaughtered. So someone's going to die. It's likely not going to end well. And you've got to remember as you read this, Esther is actually the only person in this book referred to by two names. What are those two names? One, it's Esther, and that's her Persian name. The other, we've said, is Hadassah, her Jewish name. And as you read through, you're almost called to remember this reality and ask the question, which of these two identities will she embrace? Which path is she going to choose? There's a fork in the road. Is she going to identify as one of God's daughters, one of God's people, as a Jew, or is she going to identify as a Persian? You think about your own life. Aren't our lives filled with moments like these often in the daily grind of living? Don't we often find ourselves in similar kinds of decisions where decisions need to be made that reveal who we are? Where decisions and paths need to be chosen that uncover what we actually value, that show the true measure of who we actually are. Kids, it may be at school when someone is being mistreated. As you see that happening, you have a choice. Are you going to speak up, stand up, or would it be easier to retreat to save yourself? And that's a hard decision to make. Or perhaps for folks who are in office towers or working a nine-to-five job, it could be making the decision between an unethical practice at work or rather sticking to the straight and narrow. It could be not cheating on your taxes or taking the easy route to gain a few bucks. It could be letting someone take the fall for something so that you can get off clean, so that your reputation is not tarnished, so that your career path is not hurt. It could be refusing to help a friend who is in need because it's going to cost you time, it's going to cost you energy and sweat and perhaps even your money or your home. Listen, the, the choice before Esther is one similar that you and I often face. Though it's not with such grand implications on the world, and this is for Esther. You and I face these kinds of choices all the time. And so as you look at the life of Esther, is she going to cave? Is she going to retreat? Persistent Mordecai has a rebuttal to her resistance in verse 12. Hear this. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said, and Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself, dear Esther, that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Quickly, Mordecai says these two things to remind Esther of reality, the, the reality of where she is. He says, one, listen, Esther, your palace, dear Esther, will not protect you. Your palace will not protect you. Who you are, the position you've acquired, the wealth you have, the person you think you are in that palace, 
means nothing. Because at the end of the day, you are a Jew just like the rest of us, and no royal crown will be able to hide who you are. You may not want to give up your life. You may not want to give up the opulence and the comfort. But the reality is that our fate is your fate, whether you realize it or not. You're one of us. And the second thing that Mordecai says is that, sweet Esther, listen, God is not handcuffed because of your decision to retreat or to risk. He's not handcuffed if you choose to to retreat. He's not handcuffed by our cowardice. That's what he says essentially in verse 14, and he speaks boldly. He knows Esther is a queen, but he's also his daughter. He says in verse 14, he says, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. You and your fathers will certainly perish, but deliverance will come for the people of God. It's not as if Mordecai is just banking on some stupid luck that the governor will call in at the 11th hour and stay the execution and cancel it. It's not that Mordecai is just hopeful that something out in the distance will come, some circumstance will come. Even though God is not mentioned in the Bible, and we'll talk more about this in a moment, even though God is not mentioned in the Bible, Mordecai is actually trusting in a God who has long ago promised that the people of God will be preserved, that God will sustain them, will allow them to last, and allow them to actually be a light and blessing to the entire world. And so Mordecai wants Esther to know God will deliver, whether you're a part of the plan or not, because God is not chained to human decision or human indecision. He's not handcuffed to us. Seven Mile Road, let that sober our egos in thinking that we are indispensable gifts to God and to mankind. God has purpose. God has intention for us. But he always has hidden plans that we may not know. He always has other people who will go. He will always call someone else. He will never be thwarted in the plans that he sets out. But now Mordecai shifts from reminding Esther of reality to considering a divine possibility. Shifts from allowing and showing Esther reality to actually allowing her to consider a divine possibility. It's the famous words which many have come to know that have been filled in churches all over the world and yet is no less meaningful and profound for us this morning. Reading from all of verse 14. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther, who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai, in this moment, is essentially asking Esther the question. Dear Esther, consider where you are. Consider who you are. Could it be possible that God has brought you to this very specific moment in time, to this very place in time, to this very people during this time for a reason? Uh, Mordecai is saying, dear Esther, while it may seem like it, you're not here just because you're pretty. Uh, While you may have won a beauty contest, you're not just here because of your looks. 
Esther, would you consider, is there more to this than you think? Consider again your stories. Consider again the places and people and times in which you live. Many of you, as I've even been encouraged by the late preacher Charles Spurgeon, consider all the ways in which God has advanced you in different ways in this life, not the least of which is being known by God, loved by God, redeemed by God, infinite treasures throughout all eternity, yours because Christ has seen you, has saved you, has brought you into his kingdom. Consider all the ways that God has advanced you in more ways than just spiritual. Consider many of you not only know Jesus, but many of you have been brought out of difficult situations into great success. Many of you have... uh, come into places of life you never would have imagined. Many of you have parents or you yourselves have immigrated into this country and have seen success and wealth and positions you never thought you could attain. Receiving and experiencing comforts and gifts and talents. You've been brought into the kingdom of God, blessed by him, you and I, in more ways than we deserve. And in all of this, do we ever stop and think, but why? Why is this my life? Why have I been brought here? Why do I have what I have, live where I live, are among the people I am among? Is it fate? Is it chance? Is it happenstance? Or maybe it's just blind luck? Is it for my own pleasure? Is it for my own enjoyment? Is it for the enjoyment of just the people around me? For others, maybe on the flip side, The absence of God makes you wonder why you are where you are, especially in difficult circumstances and in dangerous times and in suffering. Because in the 10 chapters of Esther, in the 167 verses of Esther, we've said God is not mentioned once. And so sometimes in life it feels like, yeah, life is really difficult, God, where are you? Where are you even even in the midst of my life? I'm supposed to believe that you're here even in the book of Esther, where annihilation awaits the people of God. Where is God? Where is he in the midst of suffering? Do you and I not often think that the providence of God cannot possibly include danger or suffering in this life? God's providential plan cannot possibly include suffering, hard suffering, loss, danger in this life. And yet, for our lives that are mixed with both joys and delights, successes and disappointments, laughter and grief. In all of this, could it not possibly be that you are not who you are, where you are, with whom you are, by chance? Could it not be more than that? Could it not be that the family you were born into might know Jesus through you? That the neighborhood you live in right now might know Jesus through you. The job you have, the people sitting beside you in a cubicle, the kids God has entrusted to you, the work you do in your missional communities, that it's more than just an activity. That the daily grind of living is more than just getting to the end of the week. That it's more than just making it. Listen, sometimes life feels like you're caught between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. You're sort of in Saturday, right? You, you know something great has happened. You know something great is about to come, but you sort of feel like it's Saturday. You know something's coming at the end of this life, but you're struggling to get through the end of your week. 
and figuring out what is God doing right now in my life. That's what life feels like sometimes. Like we're just trying to make it through. We're just getting by by the skin of our teeth. Remember this, as I heard one preacher put it. Though we feel like that, though we see life like that, though we sort of just have an earthly, horizontal perspective on all that is happening, would you consider that before an edict was ever written in Esther, before Haman was ever offended, before Esther ever made her way into the palace, God was at work in chapter 1 before chapter 4 ever happened. God was at work in chapter 1 before chapter 4 ever happened. Listen, God was resolving the problem of Jewish annihilation before the problem ever rose. Would you hear God was moving the people and moving the pieces into position so that his purposes would not be thwarted in the world and in us, but fully and perfectly accomplished through his sovereign will. Consider this. Consider the game of chess. A chess player is not moving pieces in response to every move of his opponent. He's not simply just reacting to every single move back and forth of his opponent. No. The astute chess player is thinking of what and where he or she is moving on the board. 10, 15, 20 moves ahead. In fact, this past week, I heard of one chess champion who was asked after he won this major tournament, when did you know? When did you know that you were going to win this game? And he said, 30 moves ago. 30 moves ago. Listen, an astute chess player knows where this whole thing is headed. He, he sets plans in motion on the chessboard before they even come to pass. But God, he's not just a master chess player. He's the one who's crafted the chess board. He's the one who has crafted the very pieces on the board, who knows each one by name. He controls everything. He controls the world. He knows what you and I will face before we ever get there. He knows before you ever get the news. He knows when you fail that endeavor before you ever fail at it. He knows when you are sinned against before you're ever sinned against. Overlooked for that opportunity. Move into that neighborhood. Enter that conversation. Make that decision. And even as Esther has even when you fall into moral compromise and perhaps sin, somehow God is mysteriously, providentially, sovereignly in control of it all. Seven Mile Road, hear this. You are not where you are by chance. You're not where you are by fate or by happenstance or the galaxies and all the stars in the galaxies, have not organized your life to be in this moment right now, sitting in the chair you're sitting in. You're also not there because of you, and I'm not here because of me. I know my story. I know I walked away from the Lord. I know I have a life filled of brokenness and even still struggle with sin. I know I should not be here, and yet God's grace pulls me back, has pulled me back. You and I are not where we are because of us. You're not where you are because of your wit. You're not where you are because of your gifts. You're not where you are because of your charm or your tenacity. You're not there for yourself. You're not there for just the people around you. You are there because of God. 
You are where you are. You are in the position you are in. You are among the people and right now in the time that you are in because of the grace of God having appointed you right there where you are right now. And you've got to believe that. He holds all things together. He holds all things together. When you read the book of Esther, when you see God orchestrating these things, it makes you think about life differently, doesn't it? It makes you pause and to, to ask the question, what is God doing in my life? You may not know all the answers, and I don't know that God even intends for us to know all the answers, but it makes you think differently about the world when you wake up in the morning and when you lay to bed at night. In fact, this past week, on Monday, we, a few of the folks from the church and some of our GCMs had the opportunity to serve a community in Glenside, uh, to, to be able to play some games with the kids and meet some families and be able to build relationships with, this, with these people for the sake of the gospel. And it was a great time. And as I was there, we're about to wrap up. And this older gentleman walks up to me, a man who I've seen and talked to many times over the years, comes up to me and he, he says, hey, brother, would you mind spending some time talking to my grandson? His grandson comes walking over 6'5". I'm a short little Indian guy. He comes walking over and I'm asking him, what, what would you like me to speak to him about? And he's asking me, would you be able to talk to him about life? Would you be able to ask him what he's doing with his life, where he's headed? It would be great if you could do that. And I hear this, and I'm like, I've got no time for this, man. I've got to pack up. I've, I've got other people I have to talk to here. I don't have the mental energy to deal with this right now. I just came off of a flight. I just want to pack up, go home, and rest. I walk away from this man, and I walk away from his approaching grandson. Two minutes later, I walk right back. Why? Because this passage was on my mind. I started to think, what is God doing in this moment right now with me, with this person in front of me, in this place, in this specific moment? Could it be? Who knows? Is God doing something right now? And I don't know. I don't know what would come about, but I knew my conscience was stirred, and I walked back, and we spoke for a few minutes. I got his number. We're meeting in a couple of weeks, me and this young man, to meet for dinner and just talk about life. I don't know what's going to happen, but I do know that God does not intend things in your life to happen by chance. I know he does not just organize things randomly into the world. I know I'm not a cork just randomly floating on the Pacific Ocean. I know there's more to this than that. I know your life and my life are more than just random circumstances and people and places put together randomly. I know it's more than that. And so, in the remaining verses of Esther 4, the question comes to us, what will she do? What will Esther do? Verse 15, Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. If I perish, I perish. And then Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had told him. Look what's happening. This passive young Jewish girl is transforming into this resolute woman, full of courage. 
this girl with a tattered and morally ambiguous past is turning into the heroine of this story. Uh, Whereas a couple of weeks ago, we would have shuddered. I paused and said, I would never tell my daughter to be like the Esther in chapter 2. No way. That's a a story filled with brokenness and ambiguity. And I'm not sure what I would call my daughter to. And yet here, would you see the transformation where I would say in chapter 2, don't be like Esther here. I want to shout, be like Esther. To be so bold as her and to say everything is worth losing. If I perish, I perish. I'm putting everything on the line. And you ask, why the shift? Why the sudden change of opinion? Well, it seems like Mordecai's words to her has landed somewhere on her heart. And Esther seems to be beginning to see herself as part of a larger story. She's one piece as part of a larger story. She is realizing that the circumstances that have brought her to this moment have not been random. They've not been accidental but they have been orchestrated by God. She's realizing that she's part of something bigger. In fact, Esther doesn't know it yet, but the book of Esther is bigger than about the book of Esther. The story of Esther, this chapter, is about much more than just Esther. Because, would you know, the point of Esther, of this chapter of the book, is not for us to say, Read this, look at Esther, and be courageous and go and be like Esther. That's actually not the point. Though it's good to be courageous, though it's good to repeat these kinds of words and to live your life like that. But the point is not simply to look at the life of Esther and draw a straight line from Esther to you and to me. That's actually not the point of this passage Because would you hear this? The weight to simply draw that line and to say, I'm going to now be like Esther, would be crushing. What happens when you're not courageous enough? What happens when you're not strong enough? What happens when you fail? Your motivation, your behavior change might last for a few weeks or months, but it won't last. In fact, it'll be guilt-producing when you don't perform. Listen, the point of this book and the Bible all over the Bible, all over the Old Testament, is not simply to draw a straight line from the characters of the Bible to us. Instead, this book, this story, Esther herself, is meant as a signpost, as a pointer to someone else. Because doesn't this defining moment of Esther remind you of someone? Seven Mile Road, you're used to hearing. Isn't this pointing to someone else? Instead of a Persian gate, however, you have a man who is sitting in a Palestinian garden. The scenery is different. The characters are different. But doesn't it remind you of someone? It reminds you of Jesus Christ when he sits with a choice before him, a fork in the road himself, awaiting his death and the cross. He lay awaiting a decision with the fate of the world awaiting his decision. The history of the world, you and I sitting here, how we're sitting here awaiting this great decision. And while there's a lot to look at Esther's story and Jesus in this garden, would you know that it's very different? It's actually very different. Because while Esther, as we've just read, 
would ask her fellow Jews to join with her in prayer day and night, and did. Jesus asks his friends to join just for one hour on one night, and they fall asleep on him. While Esther may have taken up sackcloth and ashes, entering into death symbolically, Jesus actually takes up the beams, the posts, the nails, entering into death literally. While Esther responded in her defining moment with the knowledge that she might perish, there's a possibility that she may perish. Jesus responds with the knowledge that he would certainly perish. Jesus didn't say, if I perish, I perish. Jesus says, when I perish, I will perish. There was no risk. It was a certainty that the Son of God would perish. And in light of all of this, in the light of all that was before him, you and I would be happy to know, you and I experience the reality of the fact that he did not retreat. He did not fall back in cowardice. He did not choose the path of least resistance. No, instead, he said to the Father, your will, not mine, be done. Listen, if you simply see Esther as an example to follow as Esther, it will crush you, it will crush me. It's, it's too great a story. I mean, you and I will never even face these kinds of massive decisions. So all of it is pointing to something. It's pointing to something. But if Jesus is Savior, if, if Esther's not the ultimate hero, if Jesus is the ultimate Savior, the ultimate hero that you look at, it changes everything about the way you and I see the world. When you see Jesus as Savior, when you see Jesus as the one who has accomplished all of this, our value is actually no longer in our position or our status. Our, our worth is no longer in our net worth. It's no longer in what we can attain for ourselves and maintain for ourselves. The gospel, dear friends, frees us to take risks because we are eternally secure in Christ. We're found in him. We're identified by him. He identifies with us. We can, with Esther, actually say words freed by the gospel, if I perish, I perish. Or perhaps in the real worlds in which you and I live in, we might be able to say when we come to a situation at our job and workplaces, places that are compromising, decisions that we have to make that we're unsure of, perhaps you and I, instead of saying, if I perish, I perish, you and I might have to make a difficult decision and say, you know what, if I'm fired, I'm fired. If I'm let go, I'm let go. Or perhaps you would have to say, when you're shoved to the margins, it, margins of society because of your faith, if I'm pushed aside, I'm pushed aside. Perhaps you would say words like, if I suffer loss for the sake of Christ and others, I suffer loss. If it costs me my life, to the glory and praise of God, it costs me my life. Esther points you to someone far greater and once you resolve to be secure and found in that Savior, you and I can take the risks, plunge ourselves into the work that God has for us with confidence and with courage. I'll close with a quote that I heard from the great Charles Spurgeon again. It stirred me, and I hope it would stir you to throw your full lives into the work that God has for you, whatever that may be. Hear these words from Spurgeon. Settle it in your mind that the Lord has called you to the work, and then advance without question or fear.
Put your hand to the plow and pause not. Do the work with your might. Do not stand asking, do it as you can. Do not stand asking when, do it directly. Do not say, but I am weak, the Lord is strong. Do not say, but I must devise methods and strategies. Do not concoct schemes or tarry to perfect your methods. Rather, fling yourself upon the work with all your might. Load your cannon with rough bits of rock or stones from the road if nothing better comes to hand. Ram them in with plenty of power and powder and apply the fire. When you have nothing else to hurl at the foe, place yourself in the gun. Believe me, no shot will be more effectual than the hurling of your whole being into the conflict. And I would just add, isn't that what Christ has done for us? Did he not throw himself fully, completely, into the greatest conflict you and I could ever meet, our sin, that which seeks to destroy us? Did he not throw himself fully into that, that we might gain salvation and life? And so, Seven Mile Road, throw yourself into the active work of God in the world and in your life. Take godly risks because you are eternally secure. Lose face for you are approved by God. Spend your resources for the good of others. For who knows, perhaps God is working in your life right now for such a time as this. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would allow our hearts to know and to believe that you are at work in the ordinary things of life, the circumstances of life, among people and places and times with, that we often think are casual and random. We pray that you would allow us to see this morning through the story of Esther that nothing is by chance, nothing is by sheer fate. You are above and beyond and controlling all things in the world and in our lives for redemptive purposes. Would you allow us to remember that? Would you allow us to believe that so that in the, in the places that we find ourselves in today, we would believe that and act accordingly, knowing that Christ Jesus has secured all that we need in him so it can free us to take risks that we might even be able to say with Esther, if I perish, I perish. Help us to believe that and to be those kinds of people. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.